From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 144 of the Killing It Killing it. podcast. This is Carl, and I'm joined today by Ryan and Dave, as always. And this is our last show of the year. It is the last show it's of the amazing year. Amazing and spectacular. An arbitrary calendar marker. <laughs> <laughs> Once again. <laughs> well, what three words describe 2021 for you guys, gents? Well, first I have to ask, is WTF a word? Since there are three words, you could you could do oh, that. Oh, okay. That, then I'm done. <laughs> I, I would. It's I would. Been two years in a row. That's been my word for the year. So, see, my my three words would go somewhere in the direction of what? Why? Well, it's more than three words. Now I can't get it short enough. Missed it by that much. Yeah, I can go with slightly better year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Slightly better. Almost awesome. Oh, missed it by that much. And now we're spiraling back down. Didn't suck. Or, or another one. Three weeks of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> right there in the middle. Three weeks of freedom. Exactly. So, well, I mean, it has been an interesting year because I, I do want to say uh, a word that comes to mind is healing. Another one is exhausting. Uh, but it just it's summarized by, you know. Once again, what was that? Maybe that's my three words. <laughs> See, and I think the main takeaway that I have from the overall year is how radically fast it went, right? I, I lived every single minute of 2020 with the uncertainty and being locked at home and all of the disruption and everything. It, it, you know, you, you felt it when it was 90 days in the pandemic, when it got to six months, you felt every milestone. Uh, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, crap, now it's been almost two whole years. <laughs> well, I've, I've often said that 2020 was a year of asterisks. You know, the, the COVID birthday, the COVID wedding, the COVID funeral, the COVID anniversary, whatever. And now it's like, okay, now I got two asterisks. <laughs> so I'm done with the asterisks, you know. Get off my asterisk. <laughs> well, as we think about next year, gents, we have a Killing It Live. For those that are interested, January 19th, we are doing it again live. Register at killingitlive.com. Sign up. You'll be able to join us, get the pre-show. You'll be able to get the extra bonus fourth topic that we'll only do live. We would love to have you there. And this week, we're brought to you by our friends at Acronis Cyber Protect Cloud. Are you still relying on a frustrating patchwork of legacy solutions? Modernize your cybersecurity and data protection with the Cronus CyberProtect Cloud. It's a single solution that combines backup, anti-malware, and endpoint protection management. As an MSP, you can easily improve client security posture, eliminate complexity, and generate more recurring revenue. Learn more about a Cronus CyberProtect Cloud at acronus.com. Excellent. Let's dive into our first topic, gentlemen. Uh, the topic is you need to go back to school and learn how to do your job again, basically, right? Uh, ultimately, and there's an article that we're linking to in the show notes that I would highly recommend that people go in and read because this is a complicated topic. Essentially, the thesis is that systems administration and management, i.e. what we in the managed services world do for a living, 
is now no longer the same job skill that it used to be for all of these years. As they describe it, we have moved from a world of complicated systems. In other words, they were hard, but you were an expert and you knew how to do hard things. And we've moved now into a world of complex systems, meaning even smart people have no idea what has gone wrong, but they know how to learn what has gone wrong and that is a completely new skill there's a there's a model that they're referencing in here called the knevins model and if you're not familiar with that it is not spelled remotely like it is pronounced so uh, look to the article and it's something that i think is very very deep uh gentlemen thoughts from you guys on this evolution in systems management well it, it struck me because the the focus on the different kinds of practices uh, was something that resonated for me. I've, I've railed against best practice as a, as a term because too often I find best practice is what that one guy did that one time. That, that is not the intention of what best practices are supposed to be. And oftentimes, particularly in our industry, somebody that cites, well, it's a best practice is usually just some guy's opinion. So what I liked about this also was this idea of reframing that complicated things actually do have good practices, where in complex uh, systems you actually have emergent practices that show where the trend is. And, and that actually is one of the reasons why the article resonated was I was saying, okay, I'm reframing the idea of the approach of practices anyway. I'm already unhappy with best practice. Now I should know, okay, throwing it away anyway, because if I'm looking toward these complex systems practice areas and practice definitions is already a different thing i should start my approach differently as well you know i i'm i always think of like airplanes when i need an example of something where i say this is something so big that a person can't do it you can't build an airplane like none of you neither of you can build an airplane in your life it takes a team to build that and somebody has to be an expert on each piece of it or the thing doesn't take off and I remember my dad was a mechanic. There was a time when cars became too complicated. He understood when they were just complicated enough, but when you put computers in there and now nobody can fix your car, right? You know, somebody can fix, fix a piece of your car, but no one mechanic can fix your entire car. That's those days are gone. And I think in our industry, we're kind of, I, I agree that we're at that point. I love the graph. It's sort of visually makes sense to me uh, that we want to avoid the chaos and we're clearly above the obvious, uh, but <clears throat> between complicated and complex, I think we're more comfortable with complicated. And I think some of the resistance to cloud computing in the future is resistance to moving into something more complicated than I can understand. Well, the, so the security people are probably also looking at this right now and it's very much resonating because I mean, right now, the the conversation's been logged for J, right? And I don't want to do a whole log for J segment, but what I'm actually going to going to observe, because we'll observe some of this in the next bit as well, is in many cases there's a lot of sit around and wait, right? Because if you've got this embedded library, you're in a position where you're not necessarily able to do. You're waiting on other people to do their part so that you can patch. Maybe you're mitigating, but you're you're not in that piece. This is the larger systematic approach of why this is the problem, is that you're not able to fix all of the bits all at once. This is far too much a, a complicated set of systems, particularly when you look at the technology stack that drives most businesses. 
it's way more than you can get a single person to get their head around anyway. Thus, the approach needs to be different to, to be thinking about it in this more complex system approach versus I'm an IT guy. You can get my hands around everything that's going on in this technology stack. Yeah, not so much. Well, see, and, and this is the thing, right? I grew, I was I was born into this industry at a time when everybody was transitioning off of mainframe systems, the old AS400 green screen applications, and onto the client server architecture. And yet there was tremendous resistance to that migration based on the, the essential logic of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Essentially, because if you migrated things off of that AS400, uh, you may literally never get them up and running again. Now, it mystified me back then why that was true. It was like, these are not easy systems, right? If you got inside that green screen, even though it was older code, that was some arcane Byzantine architecture. Things were complicated as hell. But what we have learned and what this article points out is that no matter how complicated they were, they were self-contained. You built the boundaries inside of a single system and therefore you were the one who drew the schematic and you knew exactly where everything was and how to make that thing work effectively. Well, in the cloud world, you do not draw the systems anymore. You spin up a virtual machine on AWS and some of that data lives here, there, and anywhere. And microservices are being drawn in real time from somebody else's system. When things go haywire, you legitimately are not in control of all the pieces. Now, this is where I think it becomes mission critical for the job description of being an MSP in, in our world. We are obsessed with the idea of standardization and, as Carl has taught us over the years, standard operating procedure, right? This is what we do. This is how we do it. Well, this new mindset is telling us you don't know what you're doing until you investigate and figure it out. So you can't apply anything other than an analysis loop that goes in there and says, let's ask some really hard questions. And then we figure out what went wrong. Now we know how to fix it. And this day was almost inevitable. Like I, this sounds like bullshit, but I'm just telling you, there was a time a human being could know everything you needed to know about the internet. Like, yeah. right? Now you can't yeah. know everything there is to know about graphics, right? And so to Dave's point about security, you know, there's there are people who want to attack and they find a vector to attack. But if you're... If you are defending it, the story has not changed. It's just become more complex. You have to defend everything and every possibility and every variation of everything. And, you know, in many ways, it's kind of depressing if you're in the security business. It is. So that's, that whole space is totally depressing. It, yeah, it, <laughs> it is intimidating. And therefore, you know, as we have said over the years, many, many times where there is mystery, there is margin. Um, you know how people keep trying to commoditize the hourly rate for systems administrators in our industry? That's no longer your existential question because what you do is no longer easy and automatable. It requires human intuition. And uh, by the way, you get to charge extra for that. We always like to say, always like to find things that do that. Right. Well, speaking of places we can charge money for, how about the corner store? I want to actually highlight an Atlantic article entitled Corner Stores of the New Darlings of the Global Tech Industry. 
And the idea here, the concept behind this is, is that tech companies are looking for that local reach and leveraging the footprint of these very small or small stores that are baked into communities. So these generally these mom and pop places that they have some kind of tech, uh, but they're very early in any of the digital transformation kind of wave. And organizations like Amazon are considering them as mini distribution points. Uh, you know, the, the uh, fintech companies are looking at ways to get involved from an automation perspective. If you think of, if you, if you follow the super app idea, there is a lot of thinking about using these for local delivery and connecting communities. Guys, where do you see the opportunity in corner stores if tech in general is looking at it? How does this translate for our space? Well, I see opportunity everywhere, but that's my bias. I have to say, so I've been involved in the digitization of the corner store literally for 30 years. I, I used to manage all the, the UPS stores and you know the technology for the UPS stores. <clears throat> and I have seen one after another become uh, enamored with various kinds of technology. And I'm shocked at how many don't have any technology yet. Like this is this might be the deepest well available to the local person. And here's the thing that is going to put uh, Amazon and others uh, on rocking back on their heels. Small local stores love to try new things. And if it doesn't fit what they want exactly, they will throw it away, even if it is Amazon, right? And they might create all kinds of problems and stumbling blocks for these big retailers. I mean, if you think about it, how long has Home Depot and Office Max and everybody, how long have they been in business and yet they have not put all those small stores out of business. People like to shop locally and they like stores that are completely different and unique and interesting. And so there's always going to be an opportunity there. See, and, and to put some scope to this right now, the, the article talks a lot about the global situation and the percentage of consumer spending that flows through these little corner bodegas, right? And in every country, they they have a slightly different local name for the little mom and pop store. Uh, 60%, 70%, 80% in some very advanced economies. And as you move into more distributed, less advanced or mature economies, that percentage just goes up and up to put a really hard number to it, right? Amazon said, uh, let's go to India and let's put our technology into the local stores and we will be the new backbone for digital ordering and inventory management instead of just you know, scratching it out on a piece of paper in triplicate or uh, calling a guy on the phone and placing your inventory order. They've had what I would consider to be cosmic success 1.3 million small businesses are now using that service from Amazon. And yet, just in India, the universe of these stores is 13 million stores. Okay, uh, A, holy crap, that's a lot of numbers. And B, uh, you're, we're nowhere near fully penetrated right now. In addition to telecommunications and IT and healthcare and the public sector, I have spent years operating in and selling to the hospitality industry, right? Selling cash registers and time and scheduling systems and menu systems to restaurants, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the vast majority of local independently owned restaurants 
still do their schedules on a whiteboard in the back break room. It's it's not even computerized, right? You you can't. You, there are sophisticated applications that make this stuff stupid proof. It, it's I mean, and it's not complicated technology, right? It's it's very much as easy as a spreadsheet or Outlook. And yet something like 80% of independently owned restaurants still don't have something like that. This is, as you read through the technology description in the article, this is cool technology and it, it, it empowers them to do some legitimately valuable things. But even just in the United States, we're talking literally millions of these locations that have not yet been touched. And by the way, I, I you know I, I always look at say like make two statements. Of first off, there is the rest of the world that is important for those of us three Americans on a full <laughs> podcast with mostly American audience. Look, that's a whole market, and that is worth exploring. But by the way, there is also still lots of space for rural communities to get their investment too. I go beat my drum on broadband all the time. Why? I like opening up those markets in terms of the the, the last mile reach, particularly for the rural areas and those businesses that are more local that are vital to local communities can be invigorated through the investment of technology and have a two-way larger reach not only can they get access to the larger communities but larger communities get access to them which means that they are able to to sell into those so even for those of you that are saying oh i'm, a, I'm in the us and i don't have this it's, yes you do there is lots of opportunity here to look at these underserved communities, these underserved uh, market spaces and say, I can do something to make a difference there. Well, and you know, I've worked in retail for a long time and I have to say the difference between 25 years ago and today is 25 years ago, you put software into a store and then you tried to make all the stores work well enough to work together. Now the software is up in the cloud and all you have to do is get the connectivity and manage the security of that. And so it's even easier to make money because you can go and make something work. You can go and set up Stripe and WooCommerce and whatever else, and you can give a point of sale system to a store and know that it will work on day one. That's a different world than we used to live in. And it has a lot of opportunity. So, I mean, think of how many things you work with today where the place you go into doesn't have a computer. I, I, it kills me that I have zero technical uh, input into the fixing of my hot tub. That everything is done on paper and I can't look up the status of a job or, or even contact the guy except through very analog means. Interestingly, I've made that a deciding factor on new vendors. Uh, you know, a lot of, like you know, the pandemic, I had to get a new guy. I got a guy for firewood. I only wanted to go with somebody who took Venmo and had ability to, to, to communicate electronically. It became a requirement for engagement. See, that's going to fast forward this process. But to Carl's point, it's not just the size of the market. It's the need for local implementation and support. And they make this point in the article. You can have online ordering and digital communication, but uh, uh, a guy who's been running the local bodega for the last 50 years on a piece of paper, uh, He's going to look at that thing and go, okay, I just need to call somebody and place my order over the phone. And somebody is going to need to not only do systems implementation, integration, but also technical support, troubleshooting, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine a world where your local MSP just added another, I don't know, how many 
Chinese restaurants are there in your town, Carl? How many how many Indian food restaurants, right? You just added 5,000 because you templatized it and you went to them and said, fully baked, guaranteed, I know how to make it happen. You don't know how to use this thing. Sign a three-year contract and well, I'll make and, it. And looping back to an earlier comment, I mean, if, if somebody tries something in their point of sale system, it, it doesn't have the options they need for their store or their restaurant. They literally unsubscribe from that, subscribe to the next one and move on. So Amazon may be able to get into a market effectively with no competition, but in a market with competition, I don't think they're going to be the winner. I agree. Well, we shall be interesting see. to see it all play out. <laughs> so our final topic today is we want to talk about uh, the metaverse from a different perspective. I am grateful that Sachin Adela came out and had some comments because you know, the metaverse is not, uh, you know, copyright Facebook. And and even though Facebook changed their name and is trying to make that mark, uh, happily, I, I think they very quickly were dismissed as the owners of the metaverse. Uh, from the Microsoft perspective, Sachin Adela <clears throat> has a, a great perspective, which is, first of all, you go from the outside in and you say, okay, so how can we take this, this virtual technology and put it into the world that we see. And the, the perfect example so far has been medicine. A doctor can look at your knee and overlay instructions and, and you know, analysis and so forth. Uh, but also, uh, Nadella points out from the inside out, like we, we need to be able to take that virtual system and put it into the real systems that we are using. And that's a kind of an interesting perspective. One of the cool things is, that Facebook owns very little of this technology except the Oculus lenses. Um, Microsoft owns all of this technology. What they've developed in the world of gaming and what they've developed in the, the artificial intelligence and all of the massive computing that they've done, uh, they have all the components. They just need to figure out how to put them together and put a name on them that's confusing enough for the rest of us that we buy it. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to make my statement that I've made before. Uh, AR wins, VR loses. Uh, VR makes you look like a goober. That's a nice version of it. And I think anything that makes you nauseous when you use the tech, not a winner. AR, however, implications of AR, and we're just rebranding at some level when we talk about the metaverse. There's a new, uh, the Mercedes S-Class is, is out, and the new reviews show that they fully integrated AR into the heads-up display so that you're out doing a drive, you've put your uh, directions in the, into the GPS, it will actually animate in real time on your heads-up display through the windshield directions and give you the information that you need to do turn by turn. You're essentially like following a little bird essentially through through the virtual world, but that's the real world. I think implementations where we're using tech to add information to the real world in a way that does not require big face melding glasses uh, are going to win. I think that's that kind of vision of this application is going to win. I think this idea that we're going to all escape into some other realm uh, and hold meetings with legless avatars like that, that just doesn't fly for me. But it's about this, this seamless adding of information. It'll happen AR. It'll be either visual. And I'm going to continue to say, I also think it will be audible. Um, I think audio as, as a piece of the way this will work is going to make a lot of sense. 
think the Star Trek computer, right? The ability to interact, uh, talking naturally and get information fed to you in real time, regardless where you're at, fits. Now, I have to observe, this is a lot of rebranding, right? We were I was, This has been called ambient computing, the idea of the computer always there. These AR, VR terms. Uh, this is a new rebranding. Facebook needs a rebranding. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Put that aside and think to the where the actual applications of infusing this data will be. Well, and, and I think the important point that Satya is making, it, it, it speaks directly to who we are and what we do for a living. This is not a new technology in search of a practical application. It is a stop on the continuum of how we interact and do our jobs and our uh, interpersonal connections. It's a collaboration tool, right? He draws out the idea of a spectrum where collaboration has many tools that range on a spectrum from, I sent you an email and you may eventually read it and reply to, I met you in person and we had a real human connection. And in between there, there are voice calls and video calls and augmented 2D and then 3D virtual environments that will never replace the need for or the value of actually getting together in real time. Now, when you think about it like that, we're not gonna go to our customers and say, uh, do you guys want to buy some metaverse? Because we got metaverse for sale if you'd like to buy some. That's not the point. The point is, how can we enable your business in the light of today's world where we are remote, we are hybrid, we are disrupted, often very disconnected? How can we make you more effective in the way that you engage and interact with your people, with your customers, and with trade partners? He goes on to make a further point that I think is where the killer business opportunity is in this process. His point is, no matter what technology you are using and what tools you have available to connect with your employees or your customers, it's not a question of the technology. It's a question of how good are you at using it? And he uses the example specifically of a manager in a business. And the whole point to hybrid working and the metaverse in any format is if I go in there and it's boring or it's impersonal or I can't connect with you at a cultural level, I won't. And then I don't care how much of the technology you have purchased and deployed. It's a question of, in his example, a manager has to be able to demonstrate that they care about people and are connected. Now that is what I would call the definition of a professional services opportunity that overlays your technology consulting practice as an MSP. You can sell people all of the tools on the continuum and then teach them how to use those things well and effectively. And that's where the high billable hours come. From. We've always had technology that's a little whiz bang enough that people buy it for the whiz bang. But, and then it turns out to be not very useful. I mean, you guys are old enough to have all sold a scanner to every single person on earth. And then turns out five years later, all those scanners are gathering dust and, you know, one in 10 is ever used. But, you know, the, there's also the case that when something works, it works really well. So if you think about people being able to visualize themselves in a wedding dress, this dress versus that dress, this color versus that color, that makes perfect sense. 
and and I think stuff like that will sell. The things where things are just a little bit too far, I think that there's there's not enough appeal there. In my company, we said, hey, there we might be at the point where uh, virtual meetings are going to be a thing. And I bought uh, VR headsets for I, for every one of my staff. I bought five sets of them <laughs> and deployed them. And we set up a room and we paid Dylan to customize it and create some 3D uh, objects and whatever. And then we're like, yeah, we all agreed. Yeah, this there's kind of like no reason for this to exist. How many meetings did you have in, in VR, Carl? We had probably... I had probably two dozen and they had each of them at least uh, five or six each and some of us with all of us together. And so we, we actually, you know, I feel like we gave it a chance and we invited outsiders and it was sort of like, okay, we proved that this exists and it works, but it doesn't serve a purpose for us. It is not better in my opinion than connecting on zoom and being able to talk to five people, six people at the same time. See, and that's the thing is only when the technology makes the connection more effective will people switch to it and pay for it. If it doesn't improve connection and communication and commerce, people are going to go, yeah, that's nifty. Why don't y'all tell me when that's relevant and valuable and I'll catch up with you, but I'm not going to be an early adopter. I think the way, and again, there's a video attached to the link that we're going to share here in the show notes. Go watch that. A, Satya is a ridiculously intelligent person who speaks clearly. And, and, he, and he just, he explains some really hard in very plain English terms. I like listening to this guy's ideas. Um, go there, watch that and listen to him and, and take the human part away from it, right? Because that's where I think it's all going. Technology's cool, but if people don't like working at your company, it kind of doesn't matter whether or not they can do it virtually. Isn't that the theme always? If people don't like working at your company, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> then it's all over. Just like this episode of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.